Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is November 29th of 2012, and tonight our guest is Dr. Bruce Levine. He is the author of Common Sense Rebellion, uh, Surviving the Depression Epidemic, and the newest book is Get Up, Stand Up. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. And our guest tonight is Dr. Bruce Levine. He is right here. We're going to bring him on. Bruce, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Good to be on your show. Well, it's great to have you. I really liked your book, uh, Common Sense Rebellion. You know, you you talk uh, you talk about a lot of things that a lot of my favorite authors also talk about. People like Stanton Peel or Thomas Zaz, and so we're going to get into some of those issues just right away. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Um, is, does this this book claims to classify diseases, and what do you think about that claim? Well, it certainly classifies them, whether it's scientific or not. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's a it's a sort of a manual of of behaviors that some group by committee, uh, the American Psychiatric Association, publishes this DSM. They decide, they sit around and they decide what really essentially they can get away with calling a disease and so we know historically they got away with a very for a very long time with calling homosexuality a disease and it was in the first DSM which came out in 1952 and in the second DSM which came out in 1968 and the only reason that it's not in there anymore was a gay protest that that happened the gay activism movement in the 1970s and so when the DSM 3 came out in 1980 it was gone and so that's a clear-cut case that things go in uh, behavior that causes tension to psychiatrists and they gauge that it will cause enough tension to the rest of society that they could get away with labeling it as a disease and therefore resulting in their being able to treat it. So there's money to be made once you label something as a disease. And nowadays, um, the, the big money is to be made in, in terms of the pharmaceutical companies that once you've got something established by, as a disease, psychiatrists make money off of it and pharmaceuticals companies make a lot more money off of it. So there's all kinds of financial incentives to expand um, what, uh, what is considered a uh, psychiatric disease or illness. Do you think the social acceptability of a behavior is connected to whether or not uh, the APA calls it a disease? Absolutely. I mean, it's what they what they gauge. I mean, I think the two criteria, if you take a look at the history of what becomes a disorder in the um, in the DSM, has to do with what makes psychiatrists uncomfortable and what their guess is will make society uncomfortable enough so that there won't be um, they they there won't be. Uh, a kind of blowback for that. And so they decided, I mean, for many years in America, kids who didn't pay attention in school, um, you know, and they would just drop out. I mean, 1900, you had maybe 2% of kids would finish high school. Almost nobody went to college. And so a lot of kids would just learn their ABCs and they'd go back and work on the farm, you know, and, and it was, you know, they knew basic math, they knew how to read, and they just were not academics. Well, 
you know, things changed in the society when it was established that everybody had to go to high school, and the, you know, and nowadays you're shamed if you don't even go to college. And so they gauged that um, if kids um, who don't are uncomfortable in this kind of academic environment, which is a lot of kids out there historically, but if they refuse to pay attention in this academic environment, that they could get away with calling them attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I mean, that's pretty much basically how kids get diagnosed with that, that their you know, teachers tell parents that, you know, your kid's not paying attention in school and on and on. Or, or another more obvious case is this case of both of these, I should say, came in in the DSM-3 in 1980, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but another one came in that be, was laughable at the time by a lot of people, but now it's not. People aren't laughing at it. Kids are getting drugged for this. It's something called oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, and symptoms of these things are often refused to comply with adults' requests and rules. Often argues with adults. So these are basically stubborn kids, and um, you know a lot of these kids really are basically anti-authoritarians. And we can talk about this whole kind of difference between authoritarians and anti-authoritarians later if you're interested, but a lot of these kids um, are getting pathologized um, now and being drugged and for just basically being non-compliant often to illegitimate authorities. But they gauged in 1980 as America, they gauged that America was becoming more and more sort of whatever, right-wing, fascist, authoritarian, whatever you could call it, that they could get away with that, with calling something like that a disease, which you could never get away with calling it a disease in a truly democratic society. Uh, let's get back to ODD a little bit later. Let's talk a little bit more about ADD, ADHD before we go on. Um, so what is used to treat this? Well, nowadays in America, drugs and, and amphetamines, uh, speed, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, Ritalin is an amphetamine-like substance. Um, uh, Adderall is amphetamine. It's speed. Vivance is, a, is, is an amphetamine. It's speed. That's what's used on, on these uh, kids who are getting diagnosed with uh, ADHD and more. And now they've expanded it, so now there's this whole other uh, market they've got with adult ADHD. So you've got a lot of increasing numbers of Americans using, using speed out there because they're not paying attention. Now, one thing that was really shocking to me, I was doing some research on drug interactions, and I encountered one called Desoxin. That is the brand name. And then I saw, oh, the generic name of Desoxin is methamphetamine. And then I looked up the prescribing info and says, this can be prescribed for ages six and up for ADD. Right, it's pretty shocking. That's pretty rare, but it's it's it, that they that, that you'll see them using disoxin nowadays. But it is uh, still it's still shocking that 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 methamphetamine is considered a legitimate treatment for uh, for these kids who are not paying attention, um, so that they don't even have to prescribe methamphetamine off label, which they're which now they do more and more. They're prescribing not just speed for these kids who aren't uh, paying attention, but they're prescribing um, if they're attention deficit and hyperactive, in other words, a little bit annoying and a pain in the butt out there, you're allowed, they're, they're prescribing off-label, um, which means that it's not been approved by the FDA, but doctors are allowed to prescribe it. These uh, 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 antipsychotics uh, are, are, and, and, and antihypertensives, uh, you know, all kinds of kind of chill pill sedating kinds of drugs are now being used in addition to the amphetamines for these ADHD kids. Now, I saw one study, um, it, it was in a different book, um, but it said that if children are allowed to go out and run around for 15 minutes, it's just as effective as any pharmaceutical treatment for the ADD that they just calm down and come back in and go to work. 
often you just, the case. I mean, if you, if you take a look, and I go through, uh, I document this in, in that in that book. You talked about common sense rebellion in the chapter on attention deficit hyperactivity. So I, I have a chapter on that, and and what we know is that the vast majority of time, these kids who are labeled diagnosed with ADHD can pay attention. You know, when they actually are interested in something, when the uh, then when it's a novel stimuli, when they've chosen the st- chosen the activity, and also when they're paid for. And so only they, for the vast majority of these kids, they just don't pay attention to things that they're bored by, and they're not very uh, compliant. They're not cognitively compliant, not behaviorally compliant, but there really is no deficit in your ability to pay attention. And a lot of even the mainstream psychiatrists will have come to agree with that and say, like, well, yes, they don't have really, their essential problem is, 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 is one of uh, compliance or motivation or something else like that. Because if you take a look, and most a lot of parents know this, it's like these kids have no problem at all paying attention to what they really are interested in, they just blow off school. That's that's a lot of these kids. Well, I was kind of shocked when I found out. I don't have kids myself, but I found out the kids these days, uh, grade school kids, they don't have recess anymore. They don't get to go out and run around. They have to sit in school like all day long and try to pay attention. Right. Yeah, I remember having one kid a, a while back who was diagnosed by somebody out there, you know, with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and he was he was like about six or seven years old. And I said, well, you know, why don't we just run around my office building, which was you know probably you know you know less than 500 feet. And the kid was so out of shape. Then when we got back there, you know, he he demanded to sit down, and and he stopped moving around, and he lost all his jitteriness and everything because he was so out of shape. It didn't take much exercise at all for him to kind of just chill chill out and uh, just sit in his chair. So yeah, now that's clearly one obvious thing that makes kids hyper, you know, just the you know, lack of exercise in their life. And and I know it's to a lot of folks in the audience, you, you might think like, well, certainly doctors, before they go ahead and they give a kid speed, you know, amphetamines, you know, they're, they're certainly going to like, you know, try to have the kid get more exercise, you know, eat less sugar, you know, uh, not watch television, that kind of going to get them hyper. Certainly these obvious things are tried before you give a kid speed well guess what they're not tried yeah i think uh, actually a lot of our people in the audience already know from going to their doctors that uh their doctors rarely prescribe even for them exercise or diet so much as you know here's your pill uh get your prescription filled you know your your five minutes are up <laughs> right right i mean a lot of uh, there's multiple reasons why we just become a kind of totally drug um, dominated culture. I mean, one is pharmaceutical companies, their power, you know, and advertising America is one of the few countries in the world, you know, where you're allowed to kind of advertise on television, uh, direct to consumer advertising, uh, to kind of get people to think that for every problem in living that they have, you know, there's a drug for it. So that's usually part of it. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, it's sort of a kind of consumer-based uh, culture. Americans themselves, a lot a lot of them, you know, a lot, there's a lot of doctors out there who say, like, you know, if people come in with a problem and I and I don't give them a pill right away for it, I'm going to lose them as a patient, lose a customer. And, they, you know, they're in business, too, and they don't want to lose customers. So there's, you know, multiple 
forces out there, including ourselves and looking the American public, that have created this just kind of a pill, or, you know, oriented, drug oriented kind of culture here. Um, but you know, there, there, it's, it's, it's enormous hypocrisy. I mean, I wouldn't be so bothered. People have a right to do whatever they want. I mean, people, if they want to use these kind of psychiatric drugs, you know, as, as a way to kind of function in the world, they should have a right to do it. What upsets me is the hypocrisy that you're kind of pressuring through advertising and a lot of other ways um, that, that people are pressured to be on a certain pills that are making giant pharmaceutical company money and people are being thrown in jail for uh, using other uh, uh, drugs out there, um, natural drugs that probably, you know, that are in many cases are a lot less dangerous. Um, and so there's, there's an enormous kind of hypocrisy here in America, and that's what I kind of rail about, as opposed to, like, I'm not anti, you know, anti-psychiatric drugs. If somebody out there has found um, a, a use for them that's actually helpful for them, if they feel good about their particular psychiatric drug, hey, that's their right. You know, people should have a right to kind of experiment and choose informed consent. But often people don't aren't informed about exactly what they're doing, and um, they're 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 pressured in a lot of ways, coerced and manipulated by you know pharmaceutical companies directly and indirectly. Yeah, my rough guess, just from my experiences, about one in ten people that receive psychiatric drugs uh, seem to benefit greatly, and you know about nine in ten are harmed by them. That's yeah, I mean, I, I would say from my experience that there's a certainly a, a maybe I don't know one in ten, you know, maybe maybe you know some of these uh, studies show routinely say, for example, with the antidepressants, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent report some kind of beneficial uh, positive effect from them, which is exactly, by the way, the same amount as a placebo, a sugar pill. So in straight science, you know, there's basically no difference between uh, if you if you did if you did science correctly, you know, you would you would find that people People say with depression or anxiety, there would be no difference between the effect of, of the psychiatric drug and the placebo. But you know, 25, 30 percent of people, most of these studies, they report something positive. And then, from my experience, another uh, another third says it was a waste of time, and then another third or of say, you know, it, it was counterproductive. It was dangerous for them. They had all kinds of horrible adverse effects. And for many of those folks who who are on these on the drugs for a while, then they have uh, severe problems when they attempt to go through withdrawal because their body has been kind of hooked to these to these psychiatric drugs. Now, there's some information that we have on our website, hamsnetwork.org, about alcohol and uh, these antidepressants, the SSRIs, um, because there were a couple studies done where um, one study was done with early onset alcohol problems, people with early onset alcoholism. Uh, if you gave them uh, antidepressants, their drinking behaviors got worse. Um, and the same appeared to be true with women that uh, got uh, antidepressants. They were more likely to increase their drinking um, than the control group that got no, that got no medication. So uh, this is you know something that was a big concern to me because you know I had a lot of people that would come into my groups and they'd say, you know. I started taking these antidepressants. I told my doctor I had a drinking problem. He gave me antidepressants. I started taking them. I started drinking more. What happened? Right. I mean, that's a common thing that doctors will do nowadays, at least in the last 10, 15 years, you know, that when people, you know, talk about their drinking problems, they'll they'll give them maybe uh, initially to help them with their withdrawal, some kind of benzodiazepine, something like Valium or Xanax to kind of help them go through withdrawal if they need it, which, by the way, those things are kind of like alcohol in a pill. They affect the same kind of parts of the body, the, the GABA system, the gamma 
butric of system than the, the as as the alcohol does, and they, and then they also give them antidepressants, you know, which as you're saying, you know, have well, not you know are are counterproductive in in many cases. Yeah, this and the studies I uh, just mentioned, they, they are PubMed index studies. These are just very legitimate and very legitimate medical journals. They're not, you know, something that's way out there. So uh, we got them referenced. Um, well, let's uh, move on a little bit more. Let's. Uh, I want to talk about school because you talk quite a bit about school. Do you think uh, education? Well, through, from the beginning of the United States to the present, you know, you talked quite a bit about the history. You think school has changed a lot, become authoritarian? How do you think it's uh, moved along? Well, if you take a look at the whole history of uh, public uh, of schooling in America, it, it's always been it's always been promoted by forces out there, and a lot of the general public is not aware of this as as a, as really a vehicle to kind of get uh, take socialized kids. To uh, comply first with the whole sort of factory system, um, so and, and then ultimately now with this current sort of more you know bureaucratic system. I mean, so the major goal of schools is certainly not to anything to do with education. Is you know I start off that chapter with a kind of Mark Twain quote that I like: "Never let schooling get in the way of your education." I mean, most people that I know, you know, who are highly educated, um, it's sort of in spite of their schooling. I mean, they're self-educated, they're autodidacts. They they that the only way that you really kind of you know learn out there is is it. it, it it's self-learning, and um, so you know, for the most part, what school really is all about it, it, it's a vehicle to get people to show up at a certain time, to wake up, to show up at a certain time, to kind of put up in many cases with things um, that you're not really interested in, to be really to be passive, um, to be kind of directed by others, um, you know, really to kind of put up with situations. Um, with are often sort of authoritarian, and by authoritarian I mean that you know you're, you're you, you learn that that it's not okay to question authority or certainly challenge or resist illegitimate authority. So in other words, if your teacher is a complete idiot who doesn't know what they're talking about, who's maybe even emotionally abusive, I mean you're you're really kind of taught you know you're 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 supposed to just especially if they're just boring, you're just supposed to kind of like go along with that. And that and so in a lot of ways the the, the real big effect in America of schooling is not to have a more educated public. I mean, take a look at, you know, for example, the diff- you know, the difference between first graders and fourth graders and their desire to read independently, it goes down. The more schooling you have, the more the less you care about kind of reading independently. I mean, that's not a great thing. And so and 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 it really you have high functional illiteracy rates in America, you know, despite the fact that you have more and more people graduating, you know, uh, high school. Um so school is just not for overall. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't some wonderful teachers. I mean, you talk to most people out there, and they'll say, you know, most of the school is a drag. A lot of high school, they can't remember anything. Maybe they had one. Maybe they had two good teachers that really kind of energized them and inspired them. And sometimes these teachers were the ones that get fired, you know. <laughs> but but overall, but overall, generally, um, I don't know too many people I've ever met who are really thinkers, who are creative people, who are writers, artists, scientists, um, any one of those folks who really didn't get a lot of their education um, through their peers, through them, through their own, you know, seeking out on their own, um, you know, knowledge, seeking out their own mentors, uh, and so that that's a that's a big lesson I think generally overall that a lot of the problem that we have in America when it, when it comes to either alcohol treatment, psychiatric treatment, um, people are socialized to kind of depend on these authorities who are often um, illegitimate. And this socialization to depend on illegitimate authorities is really in a lot of ways what's, what most schooling is all about. 
Well, this brings us right back around to uh, ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, because I think a lot of original thinkers are rather iconoclastic, and, you know, they they really kind of uh, go against, you know, the prevailing ideas of society. And uh, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. If you take a look at almost every great artist, scientist, certainly political activist in American history or world history, um, and you know, you're going to find that they would be diagnosed with those symptoms of oppositional defiant disorder. And I, I did a piece, you know, the kind of encouraging thing for me is I, I did a piece that kind of uh, a, a while ago, last year, that sort of went viral on the Internet there that people can go on my website and check it out, this uh, alternate. I did it on alternate, and it went on a few other places, but they, it was called, you know, Would We Have Drugged Up Einstein? And, um, you know, I talk about, in that there's a there's a little bit about what Einstein was all about and um you know how he really was bored by schooling and he rejected authorities and and he had some problems all the way along until you know, throughout a lot of his early life. And that's that's the case not only with great scientists, it's the case with a lot of great artists and writers and, and certainly famous, you know, your, your great political activists in American history. And the, the good news off of that article is I got more feedback. It got on little-known websites. It showed up on a thing called Madden America, and it got over 100,000 views. I mean, people really resonated to that. I think it really hit home for a lot of folks. It's like, what the heck is going on here? That 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 not only is it sort of an immoral, thing that perfectly normal um, kids out there are and, and are being drugged, pathologized and drugged for their stubbornness, but really it's sort of scary in terms of society at large because you're taking this kind of anti-authoritarian population that could do wonderful things artistically, scientifically, politically, and you're, before they achieve any kind of consciousness of who they really are politically or artistically and all these things, you know, they're being told there's something wrong with them, which is obviously pretty horrible for their self-esteem, and increasingly they're being medicated, and so, which, which does something to their their brain so there's there's a lot of horrible things for me about this whole idea of like how we are um pathologizing and and increasingly drugging um this anti-authoritarian population we have out there in america i think probably a lot of people feel like doctors wouldn't give children drugs that had bad side effects but do these psychiatric drugs have bad side effects oh definitely and i don't think even the most mainstream doctor in the world could could say that that uh, would say that they don't. They may not tell their patients because they may you know have this kind of attitude. We don't want to scare them from taking it. But there's no doctor in the world. I mean, even if you just listen to the drug commercials on television, they're forced to because of the the way it works with the FDA. They have to list at least some of the adverse side effects. And if you listen to most of these drug commercials, if you don't mute them, you know, and you actually listen to them, like 75% of the commercial, maybe more, has to do with their horrible adverse effects. And you know, they, these advertisers are skillful enough to to state them in such a kind of boring monotone a voice, you know, that, that people, that they're hoping people don't pay attention to it, and all they're paying attention to is the visual where somebody took a drug and now they're smiling more or something like that. But all of these drugs, you know, have horrific adverse effects, especially what's really frightening now. I mean, it's frightening enough for all these kids to be on speed and antidepressants, but now it's now increasingly routine for lots of kids to be put on these antipsychotic drugs you know, stuff like Seroquel and Risperdal and Zyprexer, and for non-psychotic conditions. I mean, you know, again, what, that you're allowed to do that as a doctor. It sounds crazy, but you're allowed to, as a doctor, prescribe off-label, which means you're allowed to prescribe to a kid who is not they even diagnose psychotic, you're allowed to prescribe to them an anti-psychotic. Now, drug companies are not allowed to market 
to to America to the public or to doctors off label marketing. They're not allowed to do it, but they but they do it anyways. They don't care. They get fined, you know, and, and they keep doing it to doctors. So they convince these doctors it's okay to take a kid who has either got no psychiatric diagnosis, and I've done pieces on that, you know, or, or you know maybe they've got one of these behavioral diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder, which is a non psychotic condition, and prescribe them these antipsychotics, which have horrific you know adverse effects i mean they they, they at at the very least these kids are, are are increasingly you know overeat because of this it has highly associated with obesity and diabetes it has associated these these antipsychotics are associated with all kinds of uh, attardive dyskinesia tremor muscle tremors i mean they just you know have pretty horrific adverse effects um so and and i don't think anybody you know in their right mind who knows anything about biology or chemistry would say that a drug all these psychiatric psychotropic drugs um all illegal drugs and psychiatric drugs are psychotropic drugs. It means they affect our neurotransmitters, famous ones, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. And any time you affect those neurotransmitters, you're going to have all kinds of adverse effects because they're all over your body and your body adapts to them. And there's all kinds of homeostasis and compensations that go on in your body. Um, and so the, it, it's ludicrous. It's insane to think that you won't have adverse effects. And, 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 and a lot of them even admit to it, but their attitude is, you know, the kind of mainstream psychiatry is is like well you know there's adverse effects to everything in life out there and the risks you know and the benefits outweigh the risks well science doesn't show that okay um i want to talk a little bit about uh medical doctors mds uh as opposed to psychiatrists because i think the mds these days are kind of put in a hard place by a lot of circumstances around them. They're, they really get pushed to move through patients really quickly. And, and, you know, they're almost pushed to prescribe drugs. I think a lot of MDs are really, you know, are not happy with the system. Sure. I mean, that's true. I mean, as things get larger and larger, and this is another kind of problem I talk about in Common Sense Rebellion, a kind of problem of sort of massness is, you know, once upon a time when doctors were in individual private practice, their morality could dictate. They could decide, like, well, you know, I don't need to be rich. I just need to make a living. And so, therefore, I'm going to spend as much time as I want with any particular patient. And there were plenty of good docs who did that. And um, But nowadays, as that's more and more impossible to just be a, you know, a practice practitioner in your own solo practice is getting almost almost impossible to do that. There's still a few who do it, but very, very difficult is you become part of these large group practices. And often these large group practices are owned by these hospitals and on and on. And so you really become at the mercy. You become an employee as a doctor. And, and somebody's saying you know, to you, well, you know, you spent too much time with that particular patient and you didn't generate enough income. And then you become a somebody who you, you can't even do what you really believe in because you're being told by certain forces out there that you better generate a certain amount of income, which means the easiest way to, to, to generate income, whether it's a psychiatrist or a um, or any kind of uh, physician out there, is to just see somebody as quickly as possible and write them a prescription. And so that's why, for example, with psychiatrists, I mean, the very almost none of them actually talk to patients anymore and do therapy. Some of them would like to, but the, for them, they, they're going to make four or five times as much money a year as if they do something called medication management, which is they, they're supposed to spend 15 minutes, but more, sometimes they just spend five, 10 minutes just going through symptoms and, and, and adjusting prescriptions. Why? Because if you do a bunch of those, you know, you, 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 can, you, can, you can just make a lot more money doing that kind of thing. And again, like I said, if, you know, if it was a situation where doctors, 
you know, could, you know, be moral again and it would just be making a little less money, um, I'm sure many would do it. But for many doctors out there, they're, you know, they, they don't even feel like they have the choice anymore, that, that they're, they're going to be heaved at by their partners or by whoever's running the practice if, if, if they, they, they don't do these kind of assembly line medicine and just, you know, just write scripts, write prescriptions all day long. Now, people have listened to my show have heard me talk about this uh, before, but, uh, you know, I've uh, I've overcome my alcohol problems with controlled drinking. You know, I've changed to, you know, drinking one to two days a week instead of drinking all, all the time like I used to. Um, that worked for me. But there were two addictions I had that were just totally uh, destructive for me that I had to opt for total abstinence for, and I, uh, that was my best choice. And as I've said... The one was cigarettes, and the second one was television, because television was the most destructive addiction in my life. It was, you know, making me not do my schoolwork. You know, I was going to flunk out of school, so I said, you know, get this thing out of my house. And, you know, I haven't watched it for 20 years or so. And I know you talk about television in your book, so tell me what you say about television. Right. I mean, I think that that is one of the the most kind of addictive things. And I think anything out there, I think for people in your audience, the sort of words we kind of, I'm sure on your show, people talk about dependency, addiction, and all that. But I think anything out there that will very quickly reduce your kind of tension level, make you kind of zone out, make you not feel any kind of conflict or pain or tension, just kind of make you sort of escape from a lot, a, a lot of a lot of that. You know, is, you're going to be susceptible as a human being to um, addiction. So it could be, you know, uh, it could be a glass of scotch. It could be, and it could be what we know from studies is that for people who it, very quickly when they turn on that television, their brain waves slow down and they get in a kind of like pacified, zombified sort of state. And that's why if you sort of see what happens to a lot of people, and there's just been lots of studies done on this stuff, is, is that why it's very difficult once that once you've turned on that television um, to sometimes turn it off, even though there's nothing you really want to watch. And why why when you get back into that next state of kind of tension and discomfort, um, you're gonna you're gonna put that thing on because because it has a kind of a, a sort of a relaxing effect in in the sense of 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 your kind of brainwaves slowing down. Um, overall, when you turn it when you when you turn the thing off, it's not like relaxing like you've kind of slept. I mean, it's it's not that kind of relaxing state, but it does reduce tension. And so I think it's just a highly addictive thing. And it's, for me, what one of the things that, uh, you know, is really kind of scary, again, about American society, because there's nothing uh, that's sort of more anti-democratic than your whole society that's spending most of their leisure time five hours a day watching television. Yeah, I was one of those people. I just could not turn it off until, you know, I passed sure. out at night. I just, you know, I would get zombified i couldn't move you know and just but i realized you know i'm not doing anything that i want to do and i on top of that i'm watching shows that i despise and hate i can't stand what i'm watching right right i think that you know oh go ahead i'm sorry uh no go ahead i wasn't really saying yeah i mean i think the thing a key thing that people need to you know, understand, which again is sort of anti, you know, institutional uh, psychiatry and mainstream uh, alcohol and substance abuse kinds of uh, institutions out there. But it, it, the reality is human beings are potentially essentially addictive creatures. I mean, and the only difference really is that all of us, depending on our you know dispositions, our temperaments, there's going to be something 
that's going to be more or less have the potential to get us addicted. I mean, you know, for some people it's alcohol, for other people it's drugs. For some people, they couldn't dream of, you know, like how could I? How could any? You know, they can't imagine how somebody could just watch TV. Somebody else, you know, but somebody else it's compulsive gambling. For somebody else, it's like compulsive sex. I mean, it goes on and on. There's a long list of things that you know can create a kind of uh, addiction in the sense that they that they move you know they move you out of a state of tension. And I think you know the what what people need to do. There's there's so much hypocrisy around around this entire issue. Is is like once we understand that it, and part of our humanity is that when we're stressed out and we're tense and we're feeling frustrated and we're feeling all these uncomfortable feelings, that we if we find something that takes us out of that tension, there's a good chance that we could become addicted to it. And that I have not met a human being. I've been in practice for 28 years. I've been on the planet here for over 50 years. I haven't met a human being who, if you got to know them well enough, they didn't have something out there that um, that that they could be addicted to. I mean, it's just, and it's part of humility is is to recognize, as you did with caffeine and and and, and television and 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 alcohol, you recognize what you know. What are some things that you need to moderate? What are things you just have to stay completely clear clear of? And what are other things out there that you can kind of like you you can mess around with? Maybe you're the kind of guy who can go into a casino and you can gamble a couple of times, and it's not that big a deal. Somebody else, I mean, forget it. You know, they go in that casino and they start to gambling. It's just it's such a kind of a it's such a kind of rush, and it takes them so much out of their head. You know, they, they they can't stop. But you know, so all of us have something out there, at least from my experience, that you have to know yourself and you have to have some humility about what you have to you know completely abstain from, as opposed to what you can you know what you can mess around with, where you, you know you're you're not going to get caught up when to the point it destroys your life. Yeah, you know, the word addiction has become such a boogeyman and such a scare word that we don't think about, you know, the reward system in our brain is a survival mechanism. That's how we learn. Okay, uh, we get rewarded when we have sex because, you know, we're supposed to reproduce. Uh, that's, how ju that's how biology set us up. We're rewarded when we eat good food you know, tasty food, and especially we get rewarded for eating lots of fat because we didn't have enough calories, you know, when we were, you know, before we reached this stage of economic development that we're in. You know, the, all these things that addict us are actually, at heart, they're survival mechanisms. Right. I mean, there there are things that are telling us that they're that that that, that are giving us a, a pleasant feeling. And, you know, for some of us out there, they get such a rush when they eat fat, you know, eat certain kinds of foods that they just can't, they can't stop. And so for them, they have to set up some pretty rigid controls for them that they're only going to eat a certain kind of size portion. They're never going to eat certain kinds of foods. I mean, and you just, it's it's just really a question of knowing, you know, being, being honest with yourself, having people who are honest around with you who are going to tell you like, hey, you're somebody like, really, you don't realize when you lose your judgment with, with, with drink. I mean, you're not somebody who can, you know, you know, just drink a beer, or, you know, or or just keep drinking, and that you're going to maintain a judgment of knowing when to stop. You know, it feels too good for you, and so you know, for somebody, you know, you might want to consider some more rigid controls along those lines. And and so I think every every particular thing, and the same thing with eating, and the same thing with TV watching. You know, the same thing with there's all kinds of ego buzzes 
that people get into. You see famous famous people that they can become addicted to applause and addicted to kind of the buzz of the the, the crowd to the point where um, they're going to do anything to kind of get attention and and make fools out of themselves that way. I mean, we know all of us can see you know these celebrities who just can't stop themselves from 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 their desire to get attention any any which way they can they can get it. And for me, that's that, that you get a certain kind of a, a a buzz, a certain kind of reduction of tension when you do that. So so it's, it's an interesting list. But I think the, the key point is is for everybody to to kind of recognize, hey, there, you know, it's not like you, you know, any particular person has an addictive personality. Human beings are, are potentially essentially addictive. Yeah, it is. A, it is a survival mechanism, which when we have too much leisure, it starts, uh, you know, having negative effects. But at heart, it's a survival mechanism. And I, what, I, what I find really wrong-headed in a lot of addiction treatment approaches, um, especially some of these medicalized approaches, is that they seem to want to stamp out pleasure. They, pleasure is the enemy. So let's make a pill that makes you sick when you drink alcohol, that makes you unable to feel good when you shoot heroin, or let's give you a vaccine that you can't get any pleasure from cocaine from. You know, it's pleasure's not the enemy. Right. I mean, I think the, the healthier way is, for, at least from my point of view, of looking at it is, is that lots of to go for joy in life, to go for pleasure is what a human being, you know, it's a big part of why you want to stay alive. The problem is, is that at certain points in our life when we're vulnerable, um, we uh, get some joy out of something, we get some pleasure out of something, and um, it, it can take over. It can, it can control. It can control us. And and that you know what we need to do is not say like we shouldn't be you know trying to have joy and pleasure in our life. We have to understand when something has just you know moved from a, a, a place where it's giving you joy or pleasure to uh, becoming one something where you're enslaved. You know, by by something, and you know, people have known these kinds of things for for, for thousands of of years. I mean, there, you know, that that you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to kind of shame or beat up on, on, on pleasure and joy, and it doesn't. And that's part of the reason why all of these things, these kind of diet plans and sort of twelve step plans and all kinds of abstinence plans, you know, fail because you're not dealing with the reality that hey, how else, you know, if if this person has no pleasure and no joy in their life, and you're telling them to take away the one thing that gives them some sort of a buzz, you know, don't you think they're going to relapse? I mean, without anything else in their life that are giving them some joy and pleasure, well, of course they are, and that's what happens most of the time with, with any of these kinds of plans that are just just about abstinence and not saying like hey you know let's let's talk about some other ways you could have some real genuine pleasure and genuine joy in your life one of the positive things i've seen lately though is quite an under quite a number of people have realized that for the people that get addicted and have really bad addiction problems very often there's underlying trauma and really the thing is to treat the trauma and you know not to attack these people for being you know diseased right i mean there's and this is the case with people with so-called addictive problems or most psychiatric so-called psychiatric illnesses depression and anxiety disorders that a lot of these things have to do with as you said trauma and also too uh, being in environments that are incredibly alienating so there's what you could call an ongoing trauma and so those are you know the areas that you would, you know, two big areas that aren't focused on. Um, one is like helping people extricate 
out from alienating environments, uh, environments where they have no autonomy, no community, they, they, they feel like they can't even be who the heck they are, and, and also to help people heal. Um, uh, healing, and there's a lot of different ways that people go about that. But there's, you know, basic healing from kind of tra- you know, from from being traumatized out there, and those are really two huge ways that people um, move out of their kind of compulsivities because they they get rid of some of the uh, that that fuel that that pain that they constantly need to feel to to, to be to be um, numbed. Well, one more topic I want to touch on before we finish up here, and that is the idea of the world of work and having some meaningful work as opposed to meaningless work. Well, you know, that's exactly a, a huge problem in, in, in American society that there are more and more people don't want to talk about this. They want to say, like, well, a job is a job is a job, and the only thing that they want to talk about is a sort of, you know, whether you're employed or you're unemployed. Well, you know, in human terms, I mean, uh, you know, the big jobs in America here, these that are the growth jobs over the last 10 years or so, are things like cashiers and janitors. And by the way, these are the U.S. Department of Labor statistics that are, per, you know, that are that, that are the big growth jobs that have been, uh, you know, retails, you know, servers, you know, th- those kind of jobs. So a lot of the jobs in America um, out there are, are really kind of alienating, unpleasant jobs, as opposed to say, you know, again, 100 years ago in America that there were a lot of, you know, physically demanding jobs that were very much more satisfying workers. So you saw the majority of America working on family farms that required a lot of intelligence, required full use of your mind and your body. And so I think it, it's a big deal that's not talked about enough um, that one of the many reasons, and there's a long list of reasons why people are um, feeling a need, you know, to have to to sort of self-medicate or to move into these addictive kind of lifestyles or to you know have these depression or anxiety is that one of the reasons is is that there it's an alienating work world out there and you know this is something that was talked about a lot more say in the 1960s 1970s but as as so often happens in society as a problem gets even worse. As people's lives become more institutionalized, bureaucratized, as they lose more and more meaning in their work, you know, as, as it becomes something becomes so bad that that people just stop talking about it, and that's and that is a, a big problem that I think for Americans here is just is just the kind of meaninglessness, alienating, dissatisfying nature of their work. Along with nowadays is that they're getting crappy pay for a lot of jobs. But that but but even without that. Say even doctors who are still getting paid pretty well, a lot of them, there's huge amounts of alcoholism and depression among lawyers and doctors who are even getting paid pretty well because their jobs become more kind of bureaucratic and meaningless and dissatisfying. Yeah, and a lot of people, if they're doing what they like to do, they'll do it even with crappy pay or sometimes even with no pay. Um, well, let's finish up a little bit. I want to ask, what can we do as individuals and as a society to deal with some of these issues? Well, I think a huge part is, is that people need to get back their own sort of autonomy, you know, in terms of, for example, if they have a problem, not rely on these authorities who are often kind of emperor's new clothes, often like they don't really know what the heck they're talking about. I mean, I see that, and you see that, I'm sure, in the whole chemical dependency treatment world. I see that among psychiatry. So a lot of really what helps people the most out there, I mean, there's studies on this, but I've got a lot, you know, a lot of experience on this, is, is really peer support. So a lot of what you really want to do out there, whether even if you've been diagnosed as a schizophrenic or an alcoholic or a depressivist, you really want to find people who you really respect, you know, who you like, 
who have respect for you, who have affection for you, and who are going to be honest with you, who you can be honest with them, and that's one huge way to kind of get out of it. So, so one part of the way out of this this dilemma that we're in individually and as a society is to take more control over one's life. That does not mean rugged individualism necessarily. Although, you know, willpower and self-control these are also kind of discredited by psychiatry and and sort of the whole chemical dependency treatment world. But they are important. But what's also really important is peer support out there. So sort of kind of taking you know, back some control over your life and gaining some humanity, gaining your, some community, and also, to restoring, this is really the, the themes of the Common Sense Rebellion, is how to get back your autonomy, how to get back real genuine community in your life, and how to restore your humanity. In other words, not let all of these forces out there tell you that aspects of your humanity are diseased or disordered or criminal that are really basically normal and part of your humanity. So tell us um, where... What are the names of your book, and where can we find you on the World Wide Web? Well, the uh, easiest way is to just go to BruceLevine.net, or people can just Google uh, Bruce Levine or Bruce E. Levine, and I'll take you there. Um, but BruceLevine.net is my website, and in it I've got a lot of uh, articles that are free, and I've got media interviews that people can look at. And there's also the books that you listed are there, the the, the latest one, that Get Up, Stand Up, which is kind of more a political activism book, The Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, which is really a alternative to psychiatry to deal with depression, and a book that we've been talking about a lot here today, A Common Sense Rebellion. Okay, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Bruce Levine. Thank you. It's been great talking with you. And everyone, uh, stay tuned next week. Our guests will be from Project Naomi in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, they studied heroin maintenance. Um, what happens uh, when you give heroin users access to legal heroin, you know, medically by prescription? Uh, and the results are a great reduction in crime. It was a very successful project, and we're going to hear all about that next week. So come back next week, and we'll talk to you then.